Hey, everybody, and welcome back to another episode of The Daily Grind. On today's show, we are sitting down with Darren Gold, who is the managing partner of the Trium Group, where he serves as an, as an executive coach to the CEOs of many of the world's most influential companies. Amazing episode. Be sure, as always, you have a pen, piece of paper, sit back, and enjoy today's interview with Mr. Darren Gold. Enjoy. Today's episode is brought to you by Proton Mail. How many times have you ever wondered whether someone else is reading your emails? Or how did those ads know so much about yesterday's conversation? Finding an email provider that ensures the privacy of your data can be a challenge. ProtonMail is a private email solution that offers end-to-end encryption. That means they can't read your emails or sell your personal information to advertisers. The team behind Proton is based in Switzerland, home of some of the world's strongest privacy laws. All of their apps are open source, independently audited, and have robust privacy policies. Plus, Proton is funded by their community of users. There is no revenue from ad sales, and they live by their philosophy of people over profits. How amazing is that? You get to go on your phone, you get to go on your computer and not worry about who's reading your emails. It's absolutely amazing. You can get started with Proton Mail today. When you click on the link in the description or you can go to protonmail.com forward slash grind and you get 20% off their annual subscription today. That is protonmail.com forward slash grind for 20% off of Proton Mail's annual subscription. Again, that is protonmail.com forward slash grind or hit the show notes section in this page to get 20% off of Proton Mail's annual subscription today. As I mentioned, everyone, we're sitting down with Darren Gold today, who is not only an executive coach to some of the most influential CEOs, but he's also the author of the book, Master Your Code, The Art, Wisdom, and Science of Leading an Extraordinary Life. The book has been received significant praise from the CEOs of companies like The Home Depot, Lululemon, Dropbox, StubHub, Roche, and from experts in the field of leadership and personal development like Greg McEwen, who's the author of the New York Times bestseller, Essentialism. The feedback has been tremendous, with some calling Master Code the most important thing that they have read in years, one of the great personal development books of our generation. As you can hear just from this intro, Darren's a special, special man with so much to share. So as I mentioned, be sure you have a pen, piece of paper, and enjoy today's interview with Darren Gold. Darren Gold, welcome to The Daily Grind, my friend. How are you? I am doing really, really well. Thank you. It's great to be on your show. Uh, it's great that you're here. Um, Darren, kind of the way we always start is you know, for people being first introduced to you and what you do, if you wouldn't mind just kind of briefly sharing a little bit as to who Darren is and what it is that you do. Great. Well, I'll give you the brief version. I'm sure we'll get into... Uh, <laughs> The longer version, hopefully, as we as we chat. But I'll, I'll you know start where I usually start, which is personally. I'm uh, been married to my wonderful wife for, which about 25 years uh, next month, and I wow. have three three incredible children. Uh, one of the gifts of this shelter in place is they've been home with us for the past few months, 2018 and 14. Um, so a really wonderful personal life, and professionally, I do work that I love, which is I work with. CEOs and their teams uh, at the intersection of strategy and leadership development. So I'm, I'm really about helping 
leaders scale, grow, and transform themselves. Um, the premise being that you can't scale, grow, and transform an organization if you're not willing to do so yourself. So that's the the work that I do. Wow. And how long have you been doing that for? This particular uh, uh, like direct work about a little over five years now, six years, close to six years. But prior to that, I was the CEO of a couple companies and uh, was really doing that work as a leader of an organization. And then I have a very varied background before that, years in private equity where I, where I was on the boards of companies, um, consultant at McKinsey. I started as a lawyer. So I, I try to bring all of that mixed experience to bear on this central question of you know, what does it look like to be an extraordinary leader and how do you build an extraordinary organization? So that's awesome. And uh, yeah. after doing some research into and learning more about you, obviously, uh, where I kind of want to start is is your childhood. I, I realized you had a very difficult childhood, to say the least. Um, one of the things that really interests me is like you became very determined to lead a different life from your parents. Could you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, I would say, you know, it was a mixed childhood and in many respects um, challenging. Uh, my parents, I grew up for most of my life with a single father in a, a small apartment in a pretty crime ridden neighborhood of, of, of L.A. My dad was um, essentially engaged in a lot of illicit activities himself. Mm -hmm. um, that was sort of the way he knew how to make money, dropped out of school when he was 14. Um, both of my parents spent some intermittent time in jail and my mother, unfortunately, uh, succumbed to some drug and alcohol addiction. Um, so it was a volatile childhood. Um, the one constant though was a, an extremely loving father. Um, so I had that as essentially an antidote to the uncertainty and volatility of my childhood. And I can't overstate how important that was to me and how much it shaped me as a father. Um, but nonetheless, uh, my dad was very determined that I lead a very different life, and mm. I was as well. And the theme in my childhood was education and achievement. And that really propelled me into a kind of obsession with learning and doing well in school and getting ahead in life. Um, and I you know, ultimately became the first in my family to go to college and had... Um, a lot of early professional success uh, out of that, you know, really interesting childhood. And we can talk more about how that served me and, and where I ultimately came to see the, the limits uh, to the, you know, the, the strategies that I was uh, employing. Yeah, it's really interesting because when usually when you hear you know a story like that and you come from a, a difficult spot and you say your parents have trouble with the law, oftentimes people sort of follow down that route and and the parents don't push you towards a different life. But it was interesting how even though your father was into those things, he was wanting you to to do something different. Yeah, I, I and that was the you know a gift, right? So mm -hmm. I, I can imagine my life having gone a very different way. Um, without that um, simple yet, I think, important direction that my father gave me. There wasn't a lot of nuance and, you know, morality and complexity in it. It was just like live a different life and get educated, like live the life that I, you know, would have wanted to have lived but wasn't able to. And that really, uh, that was an incredible, incredibly empowering message. There was also something I think kind of I felt innate you know, in, in, I don't know whether you call it my soul or uh, just who I was and who I was becoming that was guiding me really from a very early age. I remember, I remember that. So I give myself a little bit of credit, you know, as well for 
tapping into some of my intuition, you know, early because I didn't have a lot of uh, guidance and direction. And uh, and then just, you know, I think a lot of just good fortune in uh, life can turn out in so many different ways. And uh, and mine happened to turn out in, in a way that uh, I think has has worked and and uh, in ways where I've really had to confront myself. And that's been a an extraordinary part of my journey and, and what I, the lessons from that I bring into, into the work that I do. And what are some of those lessons? You know, you, you hear people kind of talk about whether they're critical points or critical lessons learned at different life stages. What were some of those lessons for yourself? Yeah. If you know, I, the late leadership expert Warren Bennis calls it, um, these crucible moments that you're lucky enough to have. And they don't, mm-hmm. it doesn't seem like you're lucky when they happen because they can be, really severe crises that happen personally. And I, I view them as like, what a gift if, uh, if something like that can happen, because what it can serve to do is totally disrupt your patterns and your comfort zone and um, give you an opportunity, whether you take it or not, is another question to really explore yourself in ways that, that you hadn't. Uh, and so for me, um, there were sort of, I wouldn't say it was any one Mm-hmm. But there were a series of these sort of kind of catalytic moments that I um, really that really sort of woke me up and began uh, an ex- an innerward exploration. I, I've written a book where basically the whole premise of the book is that I draw this distinction between uh, a program and a code, and I argue that everybody is has a program a set of subconscious safety based beliefs values and rules that automatically drive your behavior and limit your results hmm. we don't even know we have it um it's subconscious and yet we're living our life i say in the book somewhere i was almost 40 years old when i figured out i was living a life run by a program written by a seven-year-old boy wow and when you get that realization when i got that realization i got it after being fired at sort of what I thought was the pinnacle of my career, um, it opened up everything. And I began to see for the first time that much of my life, while it had worked, um, was being driven by uh, this unconscious program and that I had a choice. And the choice, as I've come to write about it, is this, what I call the human superpower. It's this choice to consciously construct your beliefs, values, and rules in a way that really serves you and produces extraordinary results. And I call that your code. So I sort of play with this, you know, sort of distinction between program and code. And that to me changes everything. And it has for me. Um, and it's the basis of my life's work. Um, and, and, and I've, and I've written a, a book about, uh, about that journey, but, and also the sort of lessons from that. Yeah, it's interesting. When you talk about that, maybe during those moments that you mentioned when you got fired and, and this is when you began to realize it, what, what were some of the the behaviors you noticed that needed to be changed and maybe what were some new ones that you implemented? Yeah, I talk about in my book this notion of survival strategies. And um, let me just describe what they are and then I can give Perfect. you an example of one of the ones that I began to see for the first time. Um, so this, I, this is an idea that in childhood, um, particularly in the early part of our childhood, we're confronted with some form of trauma. It can be serious trauma. It can be what I call lowercase t trauma, where you're teased or bullied or felt made felt, uh, psychologically unsafe. And I had that, I was, uh, 
an immigrant from England. I came to the to Southern California from London, England, and I was, you know, having an English accent at age 18 is really cool. Uh, at age seven or eight is not cool at all. <laughs> and I was teased um, and bullied a little bit because of that. And so in that moment, what will happen almost invariably as a child is you will begin to develop a strategy for dealing with that so that you never have to avoid that experience again. And they can take different shapes and forms. Mine was what I call a belonging strategy. I was committed to being likable. I didn't know that at the time, and it was only you know decades later that I began to see it. And it really began to serve me. I was, you know, I did really well in school. I was very popular. I was the student body president of my high school. I be, developed this likability uh, superpower that really served me, and they always usually do. What I began to see uh, was how much it was limiting my effectiveness, and largely I was just unable to have the kind of direct, honest challenging conversations with people. And when I began to take on roles of increasing responsibility, not being able to be direct and honest and mature in those conversations was really holding me back in pretty significant ways. And it was doing a massive disservice to the people that I was being asked to lead. But I didn't have this distinction. I didn't know that I was being run by it. I just thought that's the way the world is. You've got to be likable. It was so fused with my identity that I had no room to do anything different. And it wasn't until I figured out that, wait a second, this is a totally made up rule, a rule made up by a scared little boy. And I don't have to hold on to it so tightly. I can still be likable, but I don't have to be driven by it. I have choice. And that's where the magic happens, where I was able to say, wait, I can have really honest, direct conversations with people, put at risk my likability. And the irony is I became more likable. Right when you're mature and authentic and congruent, and you show up and you're clear. Uh, people are attracted to that. Um, so what it points to are these myriad of rules and beliefs we hold, most of which we don't even know we hold. Yeah, you know what you can't, what you you know you can't change what you can't see. But once you begin to see them, you can and and realize that you have choice. You can make it all up then you begin to massively expand your degree of action. And so in the work that I do with leaders, it's about taking a look at the underlying way of making meaning, your underlying belief structures that give rise to how you behave and changing that underlying programming to really serve you. And, and that's, that was like one of many realizations I had um, that really opened things up for me. Wow. Are there some, because obviously you work with a, with a bunch of different leaders. Do you find that there are some commonalities between certain leaders when you, when you first meet them? Yeah, there's, I, I like to say there's, you know, if, if I were to say there are two meta beliefs. Okay. And what these usually show up, uh, at least one or two of them with leaders. One is the belief I have about my circumstances. And I can either, there's a sort of a spectrum, the psychologists call it locus of control. I can either believe that I shape my circumstances. There's always something I can do. I like to say I'm 100% responsible for shaping my circumstances, um, which I call a responsible mindset. Or the other end of the spectrum is circumstances happen to me. There's very little I can do. And it's, it's amazing to see how many people, even um, in advanced parts of their career, operate out of a default victim mindset. Interesting. So, yeah, so that's one where I usually go to right away and what it'll, how it'll show up is complaints and judgments. And what you'll hear from everyone, I fall into this all the time, 
is I begin to complain. My team's not innovative enough. The culture isn't this, right? And what that is evidence of is a relationship to my circumstances that's um, not very powerful. And so that's, that's one of them that shows up a lot. Do you find often, maybe not often, but there's almost maybe a sense of, of hierarchy that they put themselves maybe on, on a scale because they're in a certain position or they have achieved a certain amount of success. They believe that they are more than or that they are more important than. Well, what I would say is that the more successful you are, the more resistant you are to taking on the parts of you that have gotten you to that place, right? So. Mm. It's the it's the the paradox of success is that um, you've employed a bunch of strategies uh, that have served you, and because they've served you so well, you're really reluctant to take a look at them and take them on, even though you can intellectually get that they're getting in the way of you, you know, being a better version of yourself, being a better leader, being a better, you know, family uh, husband, wife, spouse, you know, partner, uh, whatever it be, mother, father. Um, so I often find that, you know, people that have achieved success in their careers, even though they're intellectually open, can find it quite hard to, yeah. um, take on, uh, parts of themselves because of that. Yeah. And that's why I think it's really important what you do, right? Cause oftentimes we're taught on how to get to the top, but it's difficult for people. I speak to athletes and, and business owners all the time too. Once you reach that level, then what? And, and yeah. if you're not prepared for it, it can be a very difficult balance in, in your whole life and even in your business. Well, yeah, that's a great point. You know, the psychologists call it the hedonic treadmill. Okay. Right? You're constantly looking for the next thing. There's no mm. such thing as being satisfied. Or you might have heard like this phenomenon of the lottery winner, right? You win the yes. lottery and literally within like a matter of weeks, you're back to the same sort of set point, right? So this idea that we achieve something and it will give us the, what we're really looking for in life, which is ease and joy and fulfillment is a total delusion. Um, what I recommend and I write about in my book is that it's the path uh, that, that, that needs to be the thing that brings you fulfillment, the path to your own self-mastery, and that each day is an opportunity to take an inch forward and becoming sort of you know, really reaching your full potential that will, you'll never finish. And this realization that it's just being on the path of mastery that um, is what's going to bring me fulfillment and joy. But there's no such thing as like, I'm going to get into the best college and yeah. then what? Now I got to get a job and I get a next job and then I got to get a promotion. And it's this constant thing. And all of a sudden you find yourself at the end of your life, not to get too philosophical, uh, looking back and going, wow, that, what, what was I doing? Yeah, no doubt. So, I mean, there's people listening who haven't achieved that fulfillment. Obviously, they are difficult times people are going through right now. And, you know, they're listening to this podcast. They're trying to, to change that mindset for themselves. What are some things that you have found is super valuable that, that someone can start to do? Whether it's something you said, something small, some, someone can start to implement to help them get out of a, maybe their current mindset and into one more leaning towards the eventual fulfillment in their life? Yeah, there's, it's such a great question and it's such a big question because there's, mm -hmm. there's, you know, it's, it's hard to reduce it to any one thing, but I will, I'll, I'll offer a few things for sure. Um, I would say at the, the, the big part of it is what I alluded to. And it's um, one of my favorite quotes is from Abraham Maslow who says, what one can be, one must be. 
-hmm. and this idea that you know if there is a singular purpose in life in my humble opinion it's this notion of self-actualization this notion of like how do i become the very best version of myself how do i commit to a practice a daily practice of becoming a you know a, a better version of myself however i define that um so that is the sort of the, the bigger answer to that question we can explore it a little bit more if we want um there's some simple things and uh i find you know one of the maybe the most easy thing to do um and yet very few people i talk to will do this is um the very first moment you regain consciousness which is when you wake up um i encourage people and i do this myself the very first thing I say internally to myself is, thank God I'm alive. This is going to be an extraordinary day. And I do that partly because I believe it. I'm incredibly grateful just for my health, the fact that I'm getting up in the morning, like I'm awaking alive and that I have what I have. By the way, regardless of my circumstances, I think I had that orientation as a kid. Yeah. Um, is a way of priming yourself because the world will show up to you very differently if that's the way you take on your day. If you wake up like most people, and I have for a long time, until I started really implementing these practices, you know, reaching for the, the alarm and going, oh my God, I can't believe I gotta get up and <laughs> what a, I got 10 meetings and this is gonna be cra a crappy day, which is essentially, without really being aware of it, kind of what you're saying. Yeah. The, the, you're going to create an experience. You're going to construct an experience that's very, very different. And so this notion of using gra gratitude intentionally to prime your emotional state and how you make meaning of the day is such a simple thing to do. It takes two seconds and it is transformative. And you know what? I've heard that before too. And, and, uh, I forget who said it, but one of the favorite, one of my favorite things I've heard someone say is, is being blissfully dissatisfied. Mm. It's being thankful, but it's also not staying put. It's, it's wanting to improve and get better. And I have found that, you know, I, I practiced that for a little while and trying to wake up. I think David Meltzer, that's who it was. He said to, to go to bed saying thank you and to wake yep. up saying thank you. But oftentimes, like I found that I would forget and it wasn't that I wasn't thankful. It's like it, it what's not trained in my mind. Like it takes time to get to that point. Yeah, it, it's so true. It's not a uh, it's not a natural um, practice. Mm -hmm. and, uh, and I find that uh, we're what's natural is to see what's wrong. Right. And that's part of our kind of evolutionary wiring. Right. Um, because we are you know, our species has survived because our brains are built to detect risk and danger. And so what's second sec nature and default for us is to see the things that are risky and dangerous and what's wrong. We're very, very good at that, right? What we're not very good at is seeing everything that's really right. Mm -hmm. And what you focus on is what you'll experience. So you're pointing to is that we have to begin to train our, our attention, our focus, and direct it towards the things that really are working in life. And it's all around us. If you've, if anybody is listening has tried this, I've heard it like called a gratitude bath, which is you just bathe yourself for three minutes. Yeah. And in gratitude, the number of things that you will find, simple things that you're grateful for is astonishing. 
Um, and yet it's not, you know, it's not nature. And I love the fact that you said, you know, blissful, you know, blissfully impatient. Is that what you said? Blissfully dissatisfied. Blissfully dissatisfied. Yeah. Because what you're pointing to is also the, the, the paradox. And I talk a lot about paradox or polarity, which is we want to be on the, on the one hand, incredibly grateful. And on the other hand, really hungry for growth, mm-hmm. you know, and, uh, if we can manage to integrate that paradox, wow, that's incredible. Um, and I think in much of living an extraordinary life, much of quote unquote success in life is the ability to see these inherent paradox uh, and polarities and begin to recognize them and capture them with the kind of language you just used so that we don't over rotate, you know, one way or another. Um, and, uh, and that ability, uh, you know, to be, to rest and, and to be active, that's a kind of yes. a classic polarity, right? We have to yep. be able to do both of those to really flourish. Yeah. And, and I think it's something that you found and, you know, it's almost, it's loving what you do. And you had mentioned a few minutes ago about self-actualization. I think really to find what you love to do is going that through that process of self-actualization. So I'd love to, you mentioned to dive in deeper. So I'd love to dive in deeper that for it with you. Yeah. Yeah. I, it's a, it's a question, you know, like the, this question of purpose is one that's often asked and I get it. Uh, that question posed to me a lot, particularly people that I'm mentoring, you know, younger people that are like, what's my purpose? How do I figure it out? And where I usually start is, um, which can be a little frustrating for people on the receiving end of this, which is like, take your time. Mm-hmm. You, don't need to, you don't need to figure it out because the more attached you are to figuring out, the harder it is that for you to be able to see it. Um, True. And it's, that's again, another paradox, right? And so it's this just being open to and attuned to the things that begin to light you up without like this rush. And um, because what it'll end up being is one of those uh, you know, again, this kind of notion of a hedonic treadmill, I've got to achieve my purpose. So purpose becomes something you're achieving, which is never going to leave you satisfied. Um, then I offer usually a more practical uh, answer to that question. And the, the one thing I love to share, which really worked for me, is this Japanese notion of ikigai. Okay. And it stands for, it's literally translated as the, the reason for waking up in the morning. And what the the term points to is the intersection of four things. What I love to do, what I'm good at, what the world needs, and what I can get paid for. And I love that because it's very practical, right? I mean, there's you can do things that you love to do, but you're not really good at. Or you can do things that you love to do, you're really good at, but the world doesn't really need. And so if you can find like, wow, I'm really good at this, and I really love it, it turns out the world's asking for it and they're willing to pay for it, which is they're not just kind of want it, but they're, they're, they value it. That can be a pretty cool place to focus my attention. And again, to do it without a rush or, you know, you know, attachment to figuring it all out. You know, for some people, purpose shows up in the first few years of their lives. For others, yeah. they, might not be, you know, they may be in their 60s and 70s and it's going to happen when it's going to happen, you know. And it's very difficult to, to accept that, right? It is. Yeah, it's, uh, it is. Uh, and I understand, you know, I think uh, I asked myself that question for a long time and finally got to a place where even though I couldn't quite name it with the precision I just articulated, mm-hmm. just sort of settled into a trusting 
that um, I was going to remain open and and attentive to you know what it was, and ultimately through a whole there was not was not a straight path my career, um, whole bunch of twists and turns, you know it emerged and showed itself, and what it does it's unmistakable, and uh, and so it's like it is again a little bit of a paradox, which is to be like looking for it, but don't be too keen on finding it. <laughs> yeah. And it like, seems, it seems to me based on a lot of the people that I've spoken to, it, it happens at, at moments you're not expecting and, and oftentimes even at, at darkest moments. Yeah, for sure. Um, you know, when things are unsettled or where your focus is somewhere else, it's like the whole, you know, being in the shower, your best ideas, right. Or, mm-hmm. or taking a walk or, you know, one thing I don't run a ton, but when I do, I exercise a ton. When I when I usually go for a run, which is a couple times a week, my best ideas come out of that because interesting. Um, I'm you know freeing up my mind for those things to emerge. So I guess what you know it's a great point because what I'm suggesting is really that the process of purpose is an emergent process, right? It, it you have to uh, you have to sort of allow it to create enough conditions for that purpose to emerge, and it will. And that requires some trust and faith. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's been my enduring experience that for people who find their purpose are people that have the patience and maturity to um, allow, allow it to emerge, and, and, it, and it will. I love that. So uh, you mentioned your book a couple times on here. Um, firstly, for people who wanted to, to learn more about it and, and grab a copy, where's the best place they could do that? Uh, it's on Amazon and like all the forms, Kindle. Awesome. And- paperback and hardcover i i narrated the audible version which was a lot of fun so oh cool yeah yeah how long did that take you you know it was an incredible process um (laughs) it was uh most one of it was so exhausting you know you you get in there for like three or four hours at a time in the studio and uh and you're and i was spent um but i was i was pretty decent at it so it uh i i did it over the course of about four or five days and like oh it's not bad at all it wasn't bad. Yeah, they said that was a much faster than 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 it might otherwise be. So, yeah, and I've heard a, of a couple months, so that's good. <laughs> yeah, no, uh, I, I, it wasn't quite that long for me. Awesome. Well, uh, I'll share that in the show notes section, everyone, so you can uh, go ahead and do that. And then, if people wanted to learn more about you uh, personally, uh, where's the best place someone could do that? Yeah, I have a, a, a website, Darren J. Gold, D-A-R-R-E-N-J-G-O-L-D.com. And I, I, this year I started a weekly blog, which I've, I've really, really enjoyed. And um, you can sign up for that on that, on that website. Awesome. And it also linked to my firm, The Trium Group, where I you know, where I do all my professional work um, as well. Perfect. Well, I will share all those links to make it super simple. And the way we kind of end the show here, Darren, is... Uh, we're going to give you the floor and you have the opportunity today to share with our audience a thought of the day. So one thing or, or something that someone can go home with today. Wow. That's a, uh, that's, that's a great question. And uh, where I, where I go is um, uh, the thought of love. And I think we find ourselves in an incredibly polarized world. And I wrote a recent piece on um, virtues and uh, the fact that there are essentially six virtues that are consistent across philosophies and traditions and religions, and one of them is love. And I think it's the master virtue. I think if we can all lead our lives asking the question, what would I do say um, from a place of love, the world would be a much better place. 
That's amazing. Well, Darren, I appreciate your time. Thank you so much for sharing your insight and coming on the show today. Colin, it's been, it's been an awesome conversation. I really appreciate it. Thank you. You got it, everyone. We hope you enjoyed today's episode. If you did, hit that subscribe button. Share this with one friend who you feel like could really benefit from today's episode. We'll be back next week with another one. Until then, Colin Morgan signing off. And always remember to keep on grinding.